Let's say a prayer together as we take a look at the scriptures this morning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's our privilege to be in your presence. So we know whenever we're gathered together that you promise to be with us. But Jesus, we acknowledge that you are here, that you're the head of this church and every other church, uh, that you know what's going on in Paris, France, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and everywhere in between. We're grateful, God, to be called your children, to be uh, forgiven by your sacrifice. God, to be sent into the world with meaningful work to do each and every day, to be part of what you're doing. Uh, We're grateful as a church, and we're here to listen to you and to learn from you and to be led by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in the middle of a series called Making Wrong Things Right, which is our way of preparing for Easter. And each Sunday, if you haven't been with us, we've been taking a look at different ways that Jesus makes wrong things right through his death on the cross. And so we've talked about things like Jesus reconciles us relationally to God. He reconnects our relationship to God through his death on the cross. We've talked about how Jesus takes our sin on himself for us, gives his life for our life on the cross so that we might find a new kind of life. JD talked about how Jesus demonstrates for us how to live our lives selflessly for other people through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and defining love by self-sacrifice. And today I want to talk about how Jesus defeats evil on the cross. So nice light topic for this weekend. I can tell you guys are already like, oh no, where are we going? We're going to talk about how Jesus defeats evil. And there's a theory of atonement, which just means how Jesus makes things right on the cross and through his resurrection. There's a theory called the Christus Victor theory, which just means... Jesus is victorious or Christ is victorious. And it's maybe one of the oldest theories, the oldest understandings of what was accomplished on the cross. So the earliest church most likely would have thought when they, when you, if you ask them the question, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? They would have said he defeated evil. He overcame evil forces, cosmic forces. He won a spiritual battle on our behalf on the cross and through the, through the resurrection. So We're going to unpack that today to talk about the spiritual battle that we're in and how it is that faith in Jesus Christ gives us authority and victory in that battle. So when I started thinking about the theme of battle, this is going to sound terrible. When I started thinking about the theme of battle, I I just thought about my living room every day because we have three kids. And if, if you're around kids at all, like every day there's a battle, okay? And the battles have sort of I think they have two themes so far, at least in my house. Maybe ours is unique. The first theme is one of my siblings or one of my friends who's overplaying has either done something wrong to me, they've wronged me, or they've failed to do something that I wanted them to do. Anybody else experience this with their children? They've either said, look, you know, someone hit me, they took my toy, something happened, or they won't give me the toy that I want, right? And these battles go on all day long, don't they? Now listen to me. If you're a parent in this congregation, unless you're asleep, which is possible, this is the time that you say amen to things. Okay? I know we don't do that here. This is not a great theological construct that I'm telling you right now. I'm talking about your everyday experience. And if you don't respond well, 
This isn't gonna, this is gonna be a long sermon. It's just gonna be long. Okay? Do you guys wanna try again? I'm gonna give you another chance. Okay. So, at my house, we have these children, and they're wonderful children. I love them to death. They're constantly battling over things, and sometimes they're battling over something they want or something someone has done for them. Or the other theme is maybe this might be unique to our family that there's constantly an issue of fairness. The most common phase, I think, in the battles in my house is, well, this is not fair. Okay? Hey, way to go, people. You woke up. They all sit right here. Can you tell? They share coffee. And my wife and I even have a little battle over the importance of fairness in the house. So, like, I'm more likely to respond some version, a much nicer version of, well, get used to it because life's not that fair. And my wife is in the back is like, no, it's very important that things are fair. And so then they got to deal with our battle in the room. There's battles, so there's, so there's battles going on in our house, and, there's, and, and I read recently in some parenting something that said, look, you're not supposed to jump in all the time and referee these battles for them because they have to learn to work it out, right? They've got to learn to fight it out, battle it out, figure it out, resolve conflict because they're going to have to grow up and resolve conflict in their life, right? Which makes some sense. So as a parent, you just have to monitor like the level of physical connection, right? Is that the right way to say that? The level of violence that might be taking place. I was trying to avoid violence. Um, You need to let them work it out because the underlying assumption there is that we all know that life is full of conflict. And when you grow up, you're not going to be able to avoid battles. You're not going to be able to avoid conflict. You're going to have to be able to resolve differences that you have with other people in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, wherever you are. And so in some sense, even though there's a lot of joy in all of our lives and a lot to be celebrated and a lot of good things, there's also a lot that's hard, right? Some of you came in today feeling like this week was a total battle. It was a struggle. I'm trying to figure out how to pay my bills. I'm trying to straighten out a relationship that's going south. I've got a boss breathing down my neck. There's battles going on all the time. And we all know that about life. That's why we say, let the kids work it out so they'll be prepared when they grow up and not think that somehow every day is a perfect play date day in adult life, right? In preparation for Easter, what we're trying to talk about is how Jesus makes the wrong things right. And what I want to talk about today is how Jesus defeats evil, how Jesus battles evil, and gives us authority through our trust in Jesus to see and experience victory in these battles that we're going to face, that we are facing every single week, every single day of our lives. And so to understand this battle between good and evil, you have to go back to the beginning of the story. So in scripture, many of you you know, there's a battle that happens right in the beginning of the story where Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and the serpent comes along and the serpent in scripture is an embodiment of Satan or sort of the head of evil forces in the world. And in this conversation that takes place, the serpent is trying to convince Adam and Eve that the thing that they've been told is good by God isn't actually good. And I think maybe the simplest way to understand evil is to to understand it as something good 
that's been distorted, lied about, altered, changed in some way, and it has become evil. The serpent in the story tells them, even though God told you, you shouldn't eat from the tree of good and evil, the reason he's telling you that is because he knows if you eat it, you'll be just as God-like as he is. So go ahead and take a bite because you're going to discover that life's way better if you eat from the tree of good and evil, that knowledge of good and evil, than if you don't. And that little story, that little microcosm origin story in scripture sort of defines the battle between good and evil in almost every other context. There are lies taking place. There are falsities that are being shared with us. There are consistent messages that are trying to tell us that what God intends for us, the way God designed us, the way God wants life to work in the kingdom of God is not the best version of life. There is another option. And you should choose the other option. And you should use your will to pursue the other option. God did not create evil. Let me say that very clearly. I don't think God created evil. I think evil is a distortion of the good that God created. And evil only exists because God created us with free will. To choose what we want and what we love. And put us in an environment that was good and perfect but allowed us to freely choose relationship with God or to reject God in our lives. And because we have that freedom, we have chosen at times over and over again to reject God's best for our life, God's will for our life, and to try to make life better on our own by going in different directions. Now, like I said, the early church would have had no problem understanding that the battle between good and evil is a normal everyday way of seeing life. And if any of you have traveled at all in the world, you know that in lots of other cultures in the world, especially non-Western cultures, understanding that there are spiritual forces influencing everyday life is a commonly held assumption by lots of people in the world. And so in this early church, they one of their struggles, one of the things they were hoping from, from a savior was that someone, God was going to send someone to free them from the influence and control that evil had in their everyday life. They connected their everyday physical experiences to the reality of spiritual evil and said, man, the reason the Romans are oppressing us right now is because evil cosmic forces are using the Roman Empire to hold us back from what God really intends for us. Greg Boyd says, the central concern of most first century Jews was over how people could get free from the oppressive and destructive force of the cosmic powers that had seized the world. Let me say that one more time. The central concern of most first century Jews was over how people could get free from the oppressive and destructive force of the cosmic powers that had seized the world. In scripture, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, leave that scripture up there for a second. So you can see Paul writing to this early church, addressing them in a way that they would have already understood. 
They already think that there are evil spiritual forces oppressing them. And so he's saying to them, our struggle's not necessarily against physical things. It's spiritual. We have a spiritual problem. We have a spiritual struggle against things that you can't necessarily see, but are nevertheless real. And this early church, it would have been obvious to them that part of their daily life was this struggle to overcome evil in the world. And they often felt like they were losing that battle. So the Savior who was going to come would have to be someone who could somehow defeat evil and give them authority and victory over this evil that they were experiencing every day. Now, I think this is a really hard text for us to accept in the 21st century in the Western part of the world. And maybe you're feeling that right now, just in hearing me talk like this. Because what we've learned how to do over the last couple hundred years is almost totally separate out our physical world from our spiritual reality. And so even the false dichotomy, even the false competition between science and faith, which I don't think actually needs to exist, is a consequence of us having separated out the physical world from the spiritual world. And in the 21st century, if you say to someone, there are spiritual forces of evil that are affecting my daily life, they want you to go see a counselor, right? They're concerned about you. Because we've separated these things out, and we think that, that there really can't be a spiritual reality that is affecting us on a day-to-day basis. Now, if you take the conversation a different direction with your neighbor or your coworker, and you just say to somebody that you know now, you say, do you think that there's evil in the world? What are they going to say? Yes, right? No, almost no one's going to disagree with that. Can you think of an example of evil in the world that we live in? Yes, lots of things, right? Lots of global problems, political problems, economic problems, environmental problems, no shortage of examples, right? But if you then ask them or ask yourself, where does that come from? What is the source of the evil? What are they going to say? Somebody else, maybe, right? They might not know. They might just go, I I mean, I don't know. And this is the trick that I think that we've, most of us have fallen into. See, what was clear in the early church is not at all clear now, which is that there is actually a spiritual realm that has influence on our life. And I think the spiritual but not religious movement is an indication that when we separated out physical life from spiritual life, We revolted against the separation and said, no, no, there's got to be more to life than that. Spirituality has to be part of the human experience. There has to be a way for me to connect somehow to something bigger than myself. I just, I feel it. It's in me. I can't escape it. But we're, we're reticent, I think, in general to say, well, maybe it, it is that there is an evil force in the world, evil forces in the world, even that are distorting what God created as good and lying to us and trying to convince us that there's some other way of living that is better than submitting to God's authority and forgiveness and salvation in our lives. If you ask people why evil exists, they might come up with some answers like, I made a, I made a quick list. 
What if the solution is just greater education of people? For example, what if the problem of racism, which I think is a systematic evil in the world, is really just an education problem? People don't know enough. And if they knew more, then racism would be fixed. What about poverty? Take poverty as another systematic, systematic sin problem, systematic evil problem. Well, is it just that people don't know that there are poor people in the world? Is it an education problem? Maybe it's a government problem. Maybe we have the wrong laws. Maybe it's a, a question of economic systems. Maybe we need to change our economic systems and these evils would be addressed. Maybe it's because we have certain oppressive governments that need to be removed and replaced with other governments. Maybe it's that we need more hats that say love is greater than hate. I saw a guy on a plane this week with a hat that said love is greater than hate. And I simultaneously really liked the hat and really hated the hat, which was ironic since it had both of those words on the hat. The sentiment of it I thought was great, right? Yeah, love is greater than hate. And then I thought, how does that help us at all? We all feel like love is greater than hate. We have to do something to fix some of these issues that we're facing. Maybe he's very active. I don't know. I didn't talk to him. I feel like part of our problem with the divisive political conversation in our country right now is that we're sort of fighting over some version of all those different things I just listed. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe we can fix it. But nobody really seems to be suggesting maybe only God can fix it. Maybe the way to address evil in the world is first recognize there's some evil lurking in each one of us. And also there are systems who are replicating evil as part of what they're doing, part of their culture over and over and over again. And unless any of us as individuals or as groups start to recognize that we have to address the evil that exists in us by finding some solution for that, there's no way to blame somebody else, as JD just said, and say, if we just have a systematic fix for this, all these things are going to go away. I really just don't think that's true. I think that's a lie that's being told over and over and over again. And imagine if that was your strategy, and you just said, if we can keep convincing people that different human agency um, fixes are going to be the solution and get them arguing about which one of these is really the best one, we can paralyze them forever, which kind of seems like what's happening right now. And so when you look at the scripture here with me, in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, you see that, that the, early, um, the early church was used to looking at the cross and seeing it as a solution for evil. Not only forgiveness for their sin, but the, the way to win the overall battle that's taking place in the world. L listen to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15 with me. It says, since the children, all of us, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. One more time. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shares in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The author of Hebrews here is writing and saying, first, Jesus knows that to get us free from the influence of sin, he had to become just like us. This is one of the most radical claims of Christian faith, right? That Jesus is a fully human and somehow also fully God. And in, in parts of scripture, it says, Jesus understands and experienced every temptation to sin and evil that any of us experience in our lives. And so we're worshiping a God that's not just sitting up on high somewhere, expecting us to do better, but rather enters right into our experience, experiences the same sorts of temptations so he can understand them and sympathize with us, and yet resists all of those same temptations on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? That he takes on flesh and then breaks the power that the devil has through death to communicate to the rest of us, if you trust me, you don't even have to fear death anymore. Death is not the end of your story. And if death is not the end of your story, you look back on what you can do tomorrow, what you can do this afternoon, you can set a whole different group of priorities for your life because you don't have to just figure out how do I get the most for myself until I die? You can say, because the one who saved me gave himself selflessly for the sake of everyone else, then I can model my life after that because death is not the end for me. It's a transition into eternal life with the God who loves me. It radically changes your life. This is the Christian response to the problems of evil in the world. It doesn't mean we don't need systems change. It doesn't mean we don't need better laws. It doesn't mean any of those other things aren't true, but it doesn't start there. That's the wrong starting place because it assumes we can fix it by being better. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you can't fix it by being better. Only I can fix it. But if you put your faith in me, there will be inner transformation that you can never, you can never create on your own. That the Holy Spirit can change your heart, can change what you care about, can change what you believe about yourself the lies that people have told you. You can recognize them as not true. You can accept the gifts that God has given you. You can hear the call to be part of something much bigger than just making sure you have enough to retire on. You can give your life for the sake of other people in ways that will connect and mean much more than your individual life could ever mean otherwise. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, there's another... Um, hint at what it is that Jesus is accomplishing in defeating evil on the cross. It says this, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy, dismantle, take apart, Eliminate the devil's work. The devil's work is based on lying to us. Lying to us about who we are, lying to us about what's true about the world, lying to us about what's true about God, lying to us about our relationships with other people. And the more that we absorb and live on those lies, the more the devil's work increases 
And the Son of God appeared not just to provide a way to access forgiveness for your sin, but to completely destroy the work of the devil and the power of evil in the world by bringing the kingdom of God in a new way. Jesus didn't just intend to bring us out to kind of save us, you know, rescue us. Jesus intends to be the king and to sit on the throne and to reign over all of God's creation. Jesus is in direct confrontation with anything that sets itself up as evil in the world. What we need when we respond to this is to believe, to accept this reality, to believe and to trust that because we have faith in Jesus Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we reconciled to God, not only do we know how to live selflessly, but we have victory. We have authority in Jesus' name and we have victory over evil. Evil has no power over us. When uh, Chris and I used to lead teams to the Dominican Republic, over the years, I realized that our teams were learning a lot more from the faith of the people in the Dominican Republic than we were probably teaching them. And so one year I came up with this idea that when we went down to the Dominican Republic, where there were lots of ministries like Compassion International, where children would be sponsored by people in the United States and receive uh, education and housing and Christian education, et cetera. I said to the team that I was taking down, which was maybe 30 some people, I said, we're all going to make those little pamphlets, the, uh, like adopt a person pamphlets, except we're going to be the people on the pamphlets. And so I, ha- I asked them all to fill out, like, get a nice picture of yourself, pick one up that you like, put it on this piece of paper, write down your name and write down something about yourself, and then write down some area of your life that you need people to pray for you in the next year. And we went down to the Dominican Republic, and I talked to the pastor there, and I said, Pastor, this is my idea. I want to invite your congregation to adopt an American. And I want to hold up the little packets, you know, and say, here is an American who's desperate to be sponsored by one of the people in your church in the Dominican Republic. And what we're asking you to do if you sponsor an American is to to commit to pray with the, the authority that you all have in your prayer lives for the things that the people are asking for prayer and anything else you want to pray for. Do you know what happened when we got into that worship service and we started handing up 30 of those packets? Do you know how the people down there responded? They were fighting over these packets. I don't know if anybody had maybe flipped the power dynamic on them quite that way to say, look, maybe you have more to offer to us in this area than we have to offer to you, even though we come from a wealthier place and we've traveled to you, and etc. But they, they were affirmed by the fact that we believed that they could do this for us. And not only that, and Chris would tell you the same thing, these folks understood the authority of prayer in a way that we just didn't. They understood that by praying, they were summoning the power that comes from the victory of Jesus on the cross over evil in a way that a lot of us didn't understand. And so when you said, would you pray for me? It wasn't like a passive-aggressive Minnesota prayer time where everybody kind of bows their heads and mumbles things. It was more like people would just start yelling at you or evil or something, right? They were just like, in the name of Jesus, in el nombre de Jesus. Isn't that how they say it, Ramon? We claim victory for you. 
in Jesus' name. And there are pitfalls to that way of praying too. But what we learned from them was we need to embrace the fact that Jesus defeated evil on our behalf. And we have to quit pretending like we don't have some authority in Jesus' name. And we have to believe, turn towards God, and accept what he's done for us and start praying and start acting as if victory was already ours. Because God's kingdom breaks in in Jesus. There are still lots of messed up things in the world, but Christians have unique authority because of what Jesus has accomplished for us to enter into the systems, to enter into the legal systems, to enter into business, to enter into education with the power of the Holy Spirit to say, this is not what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. And Jesus has given us authority to pray and act in ways that defeat and destroy the work of evil in the world. But if we don't believe that about ourselves, then we're never going to act in those ways, right? So I think the invitation today, I'm going to invite the communion service to come down and the band to come back up. When you come up for communion today, I want you to see it as an act of defiance against evil, okay? That you will come up and, and realize that what Jesus has done for you has cleansed you of whatever sin is in your life and whatever ways evil has creeped up, that you have taken personal responsibility for evil in your life and you have received God's forgiveness and now you are authorized, empowered, equipped to go into the world and to act in ways that push evil back in the name of Jesus. Amen? I put this little slide together that'll help us to understand a little bit what we're doing when we're celebrating communion and maybe this will help you today. When you come and take communion, you don't have to be a member of Mill City Church. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and the sins of the world. I admit that I need God's forgiveness, healing, and freedom. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and by trusting him, I will too. I give Jesus authority to be the leader of my whole life. I want to follow wherever he leads I know the Holy Spirit lives in me and will guide me to join God's work in the world. That's what we're doing here. And if you have never made that decision before, a great way to do that would be to pray through this right before you come and take communion. Take communion and then tell someone on the wall that's going to be praying for you. This is the first time that I've really accepted that invitation. And I want to be authorized to be part of pushing back evil in the 21st century in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are so much greater than any one of us, and yet you call each one of us by name. You know the numbers of hairs on each of our heads. You created us each uniquely. You love us more than we can grasp. The evil in the world, God, breaks your heart, yet you have given us the tools and the power to do something about it. And so, God, give us confidence well beyond our own ability to fix this stuff, but to have confidence that through what you have accomplished on the cross and through your resurrection, that we have power in Jesus' name to be set free, to be forgiven, and God, to fight on your behalf against things that dehumanize people and convince them they're not worth it and oppress them, but rather raise them up 
and invite them to take their place at your table in your kingdom where every wrong has been made right. We love you, God, and we are so grateful to be part of your kingdom movement, of your mission. We accept what you've done for us as we come and take communion now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's a blessing for you before we sing our last song. I pray that in Jesus' name when you leave today, whatever is influencing you, whatever is affecting you, whatever doubt or lie that you're battling, whatever fear you have or frustration, that you will be reminded that Jesus has victory for you over those things through prayer and the authority of Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't give up. There's hope in your faith in Christ and in the body of believers. And look this week for opportunities to fight back evil in the smallest of ways, in the largest of ways, through the power of Jesus Christ. Thanks for worshiping with us. We're so glad to have you here. Let's sing this last song together.